All right, friends. So this kind of format of a dialogue sermon, of a way of getting into the scriptures, is something we've done a few times before through the years. Um, and what I want you to know is that we're going to give Alan, in just a second, a chance for him to introduce himself and, and the work he does to you. Um, what I want you to know, I shared this, the elders and deacons had a chance to meet with Alan yesterday, uh, is that I had heard of Alan and his work before uh, meeting him. Because he was kind of this mythical unicorn in uh, the, the world of, of ministry in that he was on the faculty, a tenured New Testament professor at, of New, at Yale Divinity School, which is a position that like one or two people apply for. It's a big deal to get it. And he had this calling to, uh, to, to leave the academy, to enter into this work uh, of healing and reconciliation uh, and and. And so I was thrilled to get to know him. And the people that worked with him, because most of us avoid these conversations, churches avoid these conversations, individuals avoid these, that worked with Alan were all going, it actually works. It's actually amazing. He's leaning into the things most of us stay away from and just post online about, and it's making a difference. And so, Alan, for us to get to know you before we get into the work uh, that you do, tell us a little bit about your journey and how your journey shaped you to doing the work that you're doing now. Because it's more than just an intellectual exercise. Yeah, do you know, God builds us in different ways, and that's a good thing. And in, in meeting people, we sometimes ask, you know, what, in what church were you raised, or sometimes by what church were you raised? And you answer Presbyterian or Episcopal or whatever, and I would have to answer churches, because in my little... In my little town, we had 2,004 people, which was always a mystery to me how it stayed at 2,004. I didn't know if, if they you know, had to knock somebody off if some you know, a baby was born. Um, the, in my little town of 2,004 people, there were 13 churches. Right? And so we had this going on here and that going on there. And so I was a member, my family, uh, I was confirmed in the United Methodist Church, but I did Bible study in the, the Christian church and I did uh, by, vacation Bible school in the Mennonite church and I had a best friend from the Nazarene church and, and we even went to midnight mass at the Catholic church. It was kind of a buffet. And it seemed to me as, as we did this that all these Jesus people were trying to get it right and doing it differently. And so early on I was introduced to the prospect that maybe, maybe there's a sort of method to God's madness in making us different from one another. I went off to college because we didn't, <laughs> we didn't have a Quaker church in my little town, so I went off to college in a Quaker school, uh, George Fox College in Newburgh, Oregon, and then, and then we didn't have a Baptist church in my town, so I did summer work while I was at George Fox at a Baptist camp in California, and then uh, went to Princeton Seminary, and that was, of course, Presbyterian Central, and the, I, it was almost like a bingo card I was filling out, and I did come to this sort of sense that, that these people are all trying to get Jesus right. I never got in a church where I came away saying, you know, these people are trying to mess up what Jesus is like. Everybody was trying to get it right, but they were coming to different places. In the end, I, I only had one spot left on my card. I hadn't been or worked in an Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, ELCA, and so I married one. <laughs> she loves that story, by the way. <laughs> and tell us, you, you, you had shared a little bit about this before, but uh, of the conviction of when you left the, the Quaker College in, uh, in Oregon and their response to you going to Princeton Seminary and then when you then started working uh, at Yale, to, and how all that... Yeah, so, so this Quaker college was an evangelical Quaker college. It wasn't the sort of silent meeting sort. It was a sort of hybrid between evangelical and uh, general church and Quaker. And while I was there, I was deeply fed by my home church, West Shehalem Friends Church, and they had this group of elders who, who helped me navigate the growth in my theology and helped me kind of grow in Christ and be, it brought their wisdom. So I was very indebted to them. When it came time for me to go from Newburgh, Oregon and George Fox University out to Princeton Seminary in the East, they said, well, Alan, let's get some prayer time together. And I relished that. I thought, this is great. And, and so the day came and they had set eight chairs in the basement of the church 
seven in a circle and me in the middle. And they sat down and with, they ushered me in with grave face and sat down and they, they proceeded to pray for my salvation as I went to the liberal east, right? They, they were worried that their Alan was going to perdition because I was a friend of theirs and a, and a kind of a mentee of theirs. So I, I went east, went to Princeton Seminary, uh, sort of did my PhD in New Haven. When I finally got around to being on the faculty at Yale Divinity School, the first luncheon that we had in the fall, and you know, I'm all kind of starry-eyed because this is a great place and it's my first year. First luncheon we had in the fall, uh, we're getting ready to eat and someone is asked to bless the food. And one of the professors says, I will do it. And, and he prays and at near the end of his prayer, half facetiously, but not, not all facetiously, he prays, and God, thank you that there are no evangelicals in the incoming class, right? Compare those two views of the world. They're both afraid of one another. And what I knew about both of them is they just needed to meet each other. They just needed to meet each other. And that I've had that experience over and over of two sides not knowing each other and just needing to be around table together on World Communion Sunday. Yeah, right? yeah. So, and, and, and that obviously is something that whether we've worked at a seminary or, you know, we've ex we're experiencing those divisions in an, uh, uh, such a heightened way right now. And there's no one here, no one on the live stream joining us in worship that is immune from it. Our families, our lives, I mean, we are just at a time where, um, where these divisions are defining us and our world right now in a lot of ways. So in your study as an academic, um, talk a little bit to us about how we got here yeah. to this place in 2022 of, of incredible divisions and, and what lies at the core of what's going on right now. Yeah, so there are a lot of causes that, that people name. First off, we are more polarized, according to sociological figures, we're more polarized than the United States was going into the Civil War, right? Our numbers have now surpassed theirs. And indeed, half the nation in a recent poll, half the nation surveyed said, uh, we think there's going to be a second civil war in some soon time. Right? So, so we all know this has gone awry. What, what we go to to sort of understand that is an increasing separation from one another. We know the feeling at Thanksgiving dinner. How many of you have had a Thanksgiving dinner break up because of political difference? or a friendship. I told the, the small group leaders a little bit ago uh, when we meet at, met a Thursday ago uh, about, uh, I was on a train ride and this woman next to me asked what I do for a living and I told her and she started to sob because she had lost a best friend after the 2016 election. They just couldn't be in the same room anymore. But we all know that sort of tension and somebody came up to me after church at, at 8.15 and said, I, my family and I can't can't navigate this together. So we know that. What tends to happen is we separate in the face of that difference. And so there's, there's a, an obscure quote from Martin Luther King that I haven't seen anywhere else. And it's odd to find a, a quote you haven't seen from Martin Luther King Jr. But, but he, he diagnoses the issue as separation. This is what he says. I am convinced that men hate each other because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they don't communicate with each other, and they don't communicate with each other because they are separated from each other. We live in a my news is this news, your news is that news culture. We live in a I follow this person on social media, you follow that person. And as we get further apart, we get more likely to fear one another, right? It, it gets more likely. And, and so separation seems to be at the core of this, right? And we were talking yesterday uh, even about studies that have been done, because COVID has accelerated this yeah. dramatically, right. um, this sort of separation, because we had to be separated uh, at some level. And you, you were talking about how in a culture that sociologists have been telling us for years, people uh, are becoming increasingly lonely, increasingly isolated, uh, of, of what news sources actually can do to our brains uh, in, in this world that's more individualistic. Share with us a little about that. So you know there's money in something or there's, there's something going on when an insurance company gets into it, right? Cigna looked around and said, we're having to pay out too many claims from people 
who are depressed or lonely or things that were happening because of the disintegration of community. And they did a big study and they coined the term loneliness epidemic. You and I, on average, have fewer best friends, fewer near friends than we had 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. On the average, we've lost two out of three, or it depends on the person. And so one of the things that scholars have looked, like, looked at in this sort of tribal situation of red and blue uh, being separate and, and mutually loathing is that friendship lights up a certain part of our brain. Right? When, when I'm experiencing a conversation with Thomas, my friend, or we're sitting watching a game together or having a beer together, uh, certain parts of our brain light up that are you know, endorphins and, and things that say, yes, we love this. Now, there are a couple of things that scientists have found, neuroscientists have found, light up the same part of the brain. They don't light it up quite as much, but they simulate friendship. Opioids and listening to somebody who agrees with me. Right? So I'm sitting in front of Fox News if I'm a conservative or MSNBC if I'm a progressive, and what's happening is Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow is my friend in proxy. I'm not having a beer with them, I don't, I don't even know them really, but I know them, they're my people, and they're speaking my language, and something's lighting up in there. And so we're substituting for friendship with this sort of tribal loyalty that lights something up in us. And that's a bad substitution because what out, the outcome of that is that our nation is coming apart and our neighborhood's coming apart and our family's coming apart and et cetera. Okay. So I'm sure that there's one or two people here who are going, this is a sermon, uh, <laughs> so what does this have to do with the Bible? Uh, and, uh, and also I know that there's people, and I feel some of this, uh, that, that are going, do we need to deal with this? Like, can't church be a place that we just act like that's not there, uh, where we can leave that stuff and just, you know, enjoy being here on campus? And I get that, because it's exhausting. Right. And, it's, and it's hard when you just kind of are in the middle of this, um, as we have been for, for years now. So let's talk a little bit about what the scriptures say, what the Bible says Christians are supposed to do, and how we're supposed to posture ourselves yeah. in these times. So that experience of my, of my youth and of being a part of all these different churches drew me to a Bible verse, by the way. I'd been in memorization circles in, in the Christian church and in Young Life and, and been in circles where we did little cards and memorized, and I'd never had this one assigned, which means maybe Christians haven't paid enough attention to it. John 17. In John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples that they all may be one. And he prays for us, those who will believe on, on Jesus through their words, that we all may be one. I had never heard anybody preach on that passage until late in my Christian life. We don't spend much time thinking about that call of Jesus. We tend to think about the things can, that distinguish us from one another, right? And, and as I thought about, why would Jesus want us to be one? Let me tell you about Liz. My, my wife Liz and I, opposites attracted. Opposites attracted, I don't know how it is with you and Beth, but. We're just, we're just naturally amazing. Yeah, of together. course you are. Of course you are, and I bow in your general yeah, yeah, direction. No, I appreciate um, that. The, um, Liz is fiscally conservative, financially conservative, and I am fiscally and financial, financially adventurous. Which is such a great term. <laughs> So am I, and Beth doesn't understand. <laughs> I, I, I don't I'm get it either. And, and so if I had my way and didn't have Liz, I would be in the poorhouse. And if she had her way, we wouldn't do some of the stuff that we most have liked to do. And so we're both kind of glad. I'm more glad than she is, but um, we're both kind of glad we're different from one another. It goes to other parts of our life. She has strong executive function, and I have practically none. So, so I'm really glad that she puts a structure on our life, and I've got this sort of creative edge that she likes having in the system too. We know that about our relationships. You could probably delineate, whether it's a marriage or a friendship, a place where you've been attracted to somebody who fills out part of your bingo card, who, who, who brings something that's not you. Right? But in churches and in politics, we tend not to think that way. We look at our differences as threats rather than assets. 
Paul the Apostle thought otherwise. In 1 Corinthians 12, when he's talking about spiritual gifts, things we're good at, right? Um, talents, gifts, he says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, in, in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each, and here's the money part, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given this strange variety of a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So you're different than I am so that we can be better together. Right? That's, that's the gist of this passage. And he goes on to name some of the gifts, but then this is a famous uh, chapter where he talks about the church as the body of Christ. And he says, there's no such thing as a good body that is all elbows. Right? Or all eyes even. We need each of the parts so that they work together in some kind of harmony that keeps us ticking and keeps us walking. We don't seem to have that theology about different ways of doing uh, theology or doing politics. What I'm sort of working at in this, this, this business that I do is asking what happens if we take this diversity out for a spin? Because you and I can stay together in the same room if we never share our differences. We kind of sweep them under the rug and we'll be fine, but it's kind of fragile. When Liz first found out that I'm clutter tolerant. Which is another great term. Another good phrase. Um, she had to ask herself, is this, gonna, is this gonna mess things up for us, literally? Is this, is this gonna be a, a deal breaker? And her love had to grow big enough to get her head around that, to get her heart around that. And we're used to thinking about agape, unconditional love, having challenges, and that those challenges actually grow our love for one another. But we don't do this in the ideological differences, and, right? And, and, so, and in 1 Corinthians 12, when we talk about these different gifts, we often associate them with preaching or music or prayer or hospitality, all of which are real. But we, 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 we don't think of it as our theological or political right. uh, beliefs, but we actually do see that in Jesus, don't we? Yeah, yeah, so <laughs> Jesus had 12 staff spots to fill, right? <laughs> He had 12 spots in his follower group, and he chose to use two of them on two people who were diametrically opposed to one another on the most controversial issue of his time, which was, we're under the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire controls us. We aren't our own kingdom. We don't, we don't rule ourselves. And a lot of Jews in the first century said, we should treat the Romans nicely and do what they say, because then life will go a little better for us. We should just comply. But there were other Jews, a smaller group, who said, we ought to overthrow them. And there were a series of messianic uh, attempts to overthrow the Roman Empire. And even a little after Jesus' death and resurrection, they had to be put down by the destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of the, the temple. But in the midst of that difference between loyalists to Rome and revolutionaries against, Jesus hired one of each. He hired Matthew, the tax collector, who was a revenue agent raising money for the Roman Empire. And he hired Simon the Zealot, who was a revolutionary trying to overthrow the Roman government. Why in the world would Jesus do that? Well, there was method to the madness. Because imagine those campfire conversations. They've been in Galilee walking around, and they get to the end of the day, and they're having their meal. And these two are going at it a little bit, but they're gradually learning to understand one another, and they're gradually realizing, well, I'm kind of getting this. Jesus wanted to know both sides. He wanted us to be in conversation. Fast forward to when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and he's before these Jewish leaders who are asking him the hardest questions he faces. And they ask him, uh, good teacher, should we pay taxes? To the Roman Empire. Now he's in a fix because he says, yes, all the uprisers and zealots are going to be against him. If he says, no, all the loyalists are going to be against him and probably the Roman Empire. And so what does he say? Famously, he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, if you can figure out exactly what he meant, get back to me. <laughs> but I bet that was crafted when he was talking to Matthew and uh, to Matthew and Simon. 
right? He, he knew what both sides were animated about, and he found a way to steer through Jerusalem under great duress and challenge. And right? it's to that group that he's saying, love one another. Yeah. yeah, in the same room with all the others are Simon and Matthew, and he's saying, I pray that they will be one, and love one another as I have loved you so that the world will see that you're my disciples. So in what we're going to start on Wednesday night, and and as you work with, whether it's a church or a denomination or a corporation, you know, to to try to to work through this, is the goal that we're all going to start thinking the same way or that we are all going to be, like, what what are we, what does this lead to as we we do this work? So there are 33,000 Christian denominations, right, around the world. So what we have generally done is we've taken our difference and moved away from one another. But what we sometimes think we have to do is everybody has to think the same way, right? We have to have the same opinions, positions, theology, politics in order to be in the same room. The, the image that you, ha- you saw coming in, I don't think it's on your bulletin, I think it's outside, of blue and red dots. Have you seen this around the church? Blue and red dots superimposed on one another with a little bit of red showing by itself and a little bit of blue showing by itself. Pointillism is an art form in which you put little dots on a page and you put green ones and yellow ones really close to one another and they look blue from a distance. But they aren't blue, are they? They're green and yellow and that's what we're kind of looking at with this red-blue conversation. We don't want people to stop being different, that would be against 1 Corinthians 12, right? That would be sort of this uh, forgetting that they're, we're gifted with these differences of ideas. And so what we want is people to bring those differences and realize they can love one another across them and that we may be able, if we take this out for a spin, we may be able to, to be something bigger and better if we inform one another, like Simon and Matthew. So, Alan, um, the last thing that I just want us to talk about for a second is we talk about what it means to be a missional church. Yeah. A church that we've talked about, what does it mean to be a love letter from God to the city of Austin? That God, that covenant doesn't exist for its own sake, but to, to be a witness in, in this world. Um, in the work that you've done, and as I said, you, you're one of the few that has been invited to start bridging that secular, sacred gap, mm-hmm. um, which, is, which is, is very, very rare. What do you think is the missional opportunity if a, a community starts finding ways to do this? Because our society struggle, our society can tolerate each other, but to really lean into that our differences can uh, strengthen us and that can yield something that we can't create on our own, right? right? Whether it's our marriage, Jefferson and Hamilton, you yeah. know, in this country. Where have you seen that impact? How have you maybe an example of where it's gone beyond the walls of a faith community? Yeah, so from church to church that I go in and do these little things with, they get better at them. They practice them for a while, and at the start, they're sort of nice to one another. They think what I'm asking them to be is non-confrontational or non-conflicting. And so they start out nice, and then they gradually get that, no, if we don't air our differences, we aren't actually reaping the benefits. And they get better at it. So churches in towns where the town council is having trouble even meeting without it going up in flames. Now, Austin, of course, the city council is very peaceful. Um, <laughs> but, but in some cities and towns, there is conflict, and they, they don't know what to do with it. They can't figure out how to talk, because think of how our culture is training us. Our culture is training us that we're the good guys, and those people who believe the other way, we'd be better off without them. And, and so they don't know how to talk to one another. So a few years ago, I was at a church in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and they were doing, I think we were on our fourth or fifth courageous conversation, and they were getting better. They were practicing and getting better at it. And so I went back home, and, and a few weeks later, I got a call from the pastor because this, the city of Wellesley, the town of Wellesley, was going up in smoke over the issue of whether to have a Columbus Day or not. Do we do Columbus Day? or Indigenous Peoples Day, do we both, do we do neither? And the town council was up in arms. They, they practically had fisticuffs break out because they couldn't agree and they couldn't even talk to one another about it. So they, they washed their hands and said, you all figure it out, town. 
The pastor said, well, let's do this. She called me and said, why don't you fly in and facilitate a conversation for us on this topic. Columbus Day versus Indigenous Peoples Day. And we did it. And about 120 people came from this. I bet we had 250 in worship that day in that church. And half of them came to, to hash out. Should we have Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day? And they did it beautifully. Why? Because they were no longer doing the culture's main sort of cancel each other if you disagree thing. They were actually working together and listening to one another and talking in language one another could understand. And they were stating their differences, but they were listening to their differences. And it was beautiful. So we finished. We had an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. We finished. And afterward, we found out that there were four people in the back row, two from the town council taking copious notes, and two, one each from each side, activists from each side of the, of the issue. And they, they approached the pastor and said, you guys, had a, you guys need to do more of these. We need your help. Right? We've got a nation that is at each other. Imagine if the church became a place where we were the spot where people knew how to talk to one another, where we loved one another across difference, where we welcomed difference as a possible asset. Right? In that context, we become not just a marketable skill in the world, we become a love letter to the world. Mm. We become God's gift to a society that's coming apart at the seams. Doesn't mean we'll do it perfectly. And, and maybe that's a thing that I, that I should bring as we end. Jesus said that this unity will change the way people around us see God. And so the, the passage that we started with, uh, I pray that they'll all become one, ends with, so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them just as you love me. In other words, Christian unity, Christian unity produces in the people around us who don't go to church this sense of God that's different than the one they started with. You know John Lennon's Imagine? Imagine, and I, I've seen churches swaying back and forth and singing it, but you know that he has to get rid of religion in his ideal world. Imagine no religion. So let's reimagine and say, what if peace broke out in church? Not the sort of peace uh, demonstrations that we sometimes, the kind of peace that is lived out in a body of Christ. What if that broke out in this church and became leaven to the community around us? I believe God would be happy. I believe God would do great things if we all became one. And what it would do, not just in our city, but in our families, yeah. in our, in our yeah. friendships, in our world. Like we start right. practicing that. Um, the, the book that our, our leadership's been reading uh, that Alan wrote is called uh, A House United, uh, How the Church Can Save the World. And I, I, love, I love that concept, that there's something that we might be able to uniquely, theologically offer in our life together that might be the most evangelistic thing we could do. Not because we were trying to do evangelism, but because we were just seeking to be faithful in our call uh, in a world very divided. And so uh, this work is going to be something we will uh, have a chance to enter into uh, starting this Wednesday. We hope that you will prayerfully consider being a part of it. And maybe if you can't be there, just consider joining us in prayer and praying for this. Because um, our world, our lives, our families, our friends, we need this right now. All of us. And, um, and may God do this work among us. So thank you. Um, let's pray. Let's pray together as we close. Lord, we do desire to be faithful in this call. Thank you for Alan, for the work that he is doing. Thank you for the chance we have to enter into this work. Not just talking about it, but beginning to live it. So that your kingdom would become more real in our lives, in our relationships, in our city, our state, our nation, our world. May this great work start with us. We lift this prayer up in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Friends, this passage Alan's been talking to us about from John 17, to love each other, that the world might know him, comes from liturgy around the Last Supper, leading the way to this table. This table is where we are called to unify. And on this World Communion Sunday, where churches uh, around the globe are celebrating this feast together, and we celebrate our oneness with them, uh, it's appropriate that this feast is how we will close our service. Before we come to the table, let's bring our thanksgiving and our concerns to the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, in whom we live and love and have our being, we confess our great tendency to notice and to highlight all that separates and to be suspicious of people who think and look and vote differently instead of valuing difference and affirming all that we have in common. We pray to be changed and to be more like Jesus. God of heaven and earth, we remember in prayer this morning the many who are suffering, who have been impacted by Hurricane Ian, praying that you would sustain and strengthen your people, especially those in Florida and South Carolina, as they recover and do the hard work of rebuilding in the months ahead. We are mindful also of those living on islands who have been impacted, harmed by recent hurricanes. We pray for our sister church in Luyano, Cuba, and their neighbors. We pray also for Puerto Rico. God of life-sustaining, may your grace and help abound. We affirm that suffering, pain, and loss will not be the end of our stories as you redeem and restore all creation. We ask that you comfort those who mourn and strengthen those who are in the middle of a trial. Enable us to forgive our enemies. Help us to use our gifts and passions for the good of the world. We pray for joy and peace and purpose for those we love. We thank you that there is nowhere that we can go that puts us beyond your reach. And God, here on World Communion Sunday, we pray for your church. Unite us in truth and love. Renew us by your spirit. Free us and make us one. May we confess your name and share in one baptism. Sit together at one table, confess one Lord, and serve you in one common ministry. God, we pray to encounter you as we now pray that you will pour out your spirit upon us and upon these gifts of bread and juice, that the bread we break and the cup we bless, that it will be set apart for holy use. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. would invite now the servers to come forward. As the servers come forward, friends, when it comes time to partake, you'll take a piece of bread, you'll dip it in the cup and partake. There will be a gluten-free station in front of the organ. We celebrate and we remember that on the night of his arrest, Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. Take it, eat of it, do this in remembrance of me. Read in the same way at the same meal, he took a cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant. It is sealed in my blood. It is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink of it, he said, do this also always in remembrance of me. For whenever it is that we eat of this bread, and whenever it is that we drink from this cup, we proclaim something. We proclaim the Lord's saving death until he comes again. And come again he shall to set all things right. These are the gifts of God given for each and every one of us, his people. Amen.
Gracious God, how grateful we are for this moment, this meal, these people, 
for your church and for the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this we pray with grateful hearts as we now stand and sing together the prayer that Jesus taught us. Friends, I have for you a charge and a blessing. First, the charge. Our language in American culture right now is to be smug. We think we're right, and we think they're wrong, and we have some contempt for them, so we're smug, and Jesus wasn't a big fan of smug. So, your homework for the next two weeks is at least once a day to stand in front of the mirror, maybe just after you've brushed your teeth, and look yourself in the eye and say, I could be wrong. (laughs) And being wrong doesn't disqualify us because the blessing is that we serve a God, the creator of all things, the lover and redeemer of us, And that God loves us more than we could ever mess up. That God loves us through our attempts to get better with one another, through our failings at that. The God of the universe loves you more than you can ever mess up. Go forth into the world in the context of that grace. Amen and amen.